but all of that is still taking intellectual property that that consultant or group of consultants already had and starting to think through what are ways that they can further monetize, right? Because they're already monetizing their intellectual property through their systems and techniques and their brain trust. And so they can take that a step further. What if I told you that you had an untapped revenue source sitting in your business right now, just waiting for you to press go on it? All that hard work that you've already done that you could turn around and use to mitigate against risk and build resilience into your business model. I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. Now, we've been talking all about risk and resilience this month. Jaquette Timmons and I talked about the intimate relationship between the two. And I talked to Priya Malani and Luke Fry about the two biggest risks for business owners, cash flow and taxes. Today, we're shifting a little bit to talk about how to build some more resilience into your business model by using work you've already done and turning it into another source of revenue for your business. Today, we're shifting a little bit to talk about how to build some more resilience into your business model by using work you've already done, your intellectual property, and turning it into another source of revenue for your business. So your business model might already have some inherent risks built into it because of choices you made about how you want to run your business. So for example, maybe you only want to work with high value retainer clients, totally valid choice but it is inherently more risky than other models where maybe you have several sources of income. So say you maybe only work with two or three of those high value retainer clients at a time. Well, what happens when you lose one of them? That's a pretty big blow to your income all at once. And as long as you recognize that it's a risk, there are lots of ways to bolster your business to mitigate for those kinds of scenarios. You could just accept that it's a risk and make sure that you're cultivating a waiting list of folks who want to work with you so that it's super easy to fill that open spot. That's one way. Or you could start looking at other ways to strengthen the foundations of your income so that it's less susceptible to big drops like losing one client. Maybe you look to diversify where your income comes from. Maybe you decide to offer a course or a product, or build a tool, or write a book, so that there's income coming into your business from more than one source. That way, if something happens to one of the sources, it's just a hiccup, not a catastrophe. And that's exactly what my guest today does. Joanne Holmes is an attorney who helps seven and eight figure companies grow recurring revenue through licensing brands, software, and business content. Basically, she helps you take your intellectual property, stuff you've already created, and turns it into an additional source of income for your business. She's the founder of Homes at Law and the host of Your Business Ally podcast. And we're talking about identifying the different types of intellectual property you might already have floating around in your business, the types of revenue streams you could turn them into, and how to protect what you've created. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Susan. It is a true pleasure to join you. So we are going to be talking today all about turning your intellectual property into an extra source or sources of income for your business. But to kind of kick off that discussion, talk to me a little bit about what intellectual property actually is. 
Sure. So intellectual property is something that we all interact with every day. But if the words sound intimidating, then I promise that by the end of this, you will feel more comfortable. So there are a few different types of intellectual property. There are trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and patents. Trademarks are going to be brands, logos, and slogans. So trademark is actually an umbrella term. And if we think about some examples, you've got Nike is a brand name. You've got the little swoosh symbol, which is a logo. And then you've got the slogan, which is just do it. So all of those, again, are going to be trademarks. Copyrights are... Um, expressions of creative work. So in my mind, I organize them as creative copyrights and then more business-focused copyrights. Creative copyrights are going to be things like songs, books, um, photographs, sculptures. All of those are under the creative copyright umbrella. Whereas business-focused copyrights are going to be more things like uh, training materials, um, educational videos, online courses. Uh, they might be formulae to make a secret sauce in something. Um, the written fixed expression of a copyright is the way that you start to protect that work. So if I have a great idea or if I sit down at a keyboard and play a brilliant song, but I never recorded it, then I won't have a copyright in it. So it's really important to take that idea and express it in digital or physical format to protect a copyright. Uh, trade secrets are going to be things that as long as they are kept a secret are going to give you a business advantage. So think of the Google algorithm, um, the Coca-Cola formula. So the difference between, I mentioned formulae before, um, the expression of the idea is going to be protectable as a copyright, but the underlying formula, the, um, the thing, again, using Coca-Cola as the example, uh, Listerine's mouthwash formula is a, another example. As long as it's kept a secret, it has a competitive business advantage. And so those are protected under the trade secret umbrella, umbrella excuse me, of intellectual property. And then the last one, which is an area of law that I don't practice, are going to be patents. And patents protect useful and novel inventions. It's actually like copyrights written into our Constitution. So patents are going to be things like, uh, in a simplistic um, a presentation, the light bulb, right? And that was a useful and novel invention at its time. Now, if I tap a button on my iPhone, then all of the lights on the floor of my house will turn on. Um, that innovation is also going to be protectable as a patent. So we go from the light bulb to the click of a button and all of the light bulbs in a house coming on, um, that's expansion of patented technology. So again, uh, intellectual property is going to include trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and patents. That was perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and I, I even learned something. I'm glad. So, so can you give me some examples of intellectual property that folks might already have in their business that they could decide to monetize or turn into some sort of protectable asset? So... Every business has intellectual property. It's literally not possible to have a business and not have some form of IP. So rest assured, everyone who's listening, you've already got these assets. Um, and what I wake up every day excited to do is help clients do the monetization piece, help them through the strategy of how do you take what you already own under those IP umbrellas 
and bring them to bear. So I'm going to um, talk a little bit about consultants and coders in answering your question. So consultants are experts in their field. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be a consultant. Um, and they can take that brain trust of knowledge that they are sharing with their clients to achieve a given business objective. And especially as we're all thinking about the realities of you know, resilience and trying to deal with all of the changes that are, are coming under play and um, helping think through risk as well from a perspective of um, consultants could go in and directly deliver a customized deliverable to their client. But what they're going to see over time is that, uh, especially if they have a, a niche expertise, they're going to see some similarities. And when they start to identify those similarities, then they can package up their expertise to go from um, delivery one-on-one -on -one to delivery one-on-many -on -one -on scale. So that might look like uh, a book. That might look like an online course. Um, it might look like building out a content subscription model for recurring revenue. But all of that is still taking intellectual property that that consultant or group of consultants already had and starting to think through what are ways that they can further monetize, right? Because they're already monetizing their intellectual property through their systems and techniques and their brain trust. And so they can take that a step further. For the coders, what I would say is you are like consultants in that it is your brain trust. It's that analysis of how do you render code to have a specific function or deliverable if we're making a parallel to a consultant. And so if you start to think through, well, I've already got this code. Maybe I've got a set of code that I developed for a particular client and it was customized. Maybe what you can do is think, what broader ways can I monetize this beyond that unique client? Do I see that more and more clients are asking for code that renders this result? So can I take it and um, sell it through a white label model where, for example, um, instead of saying to a client, I'm going to make this work within your unique business framework, you say, I already drafted most of that code. I'm going to take it and make it so that several different clients can have this dropped in, perhaps at a different price point, uh, and use that same intellectual property asset of that software over and over again. Um, so I hope those are a couple of examples of how folks have intellectual property that maybe the audience um, would immediately relate to. If you happen to be a media mogul, then you might take your <laughs> brand. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of Oprah Winfrey for a myriad of reasons. So, you know, if you're like me, then you know at four o'clock on the East Coast, the Oprah Winfrey show came on. And so um, it was, you know, it was destination television. I, I love to get to watch Oprah when I got home from school growing up. And she took that brand, that Oprah brand, and took it from the Oprah Winfrey show. And then she developed out that brand family into O Magazine, which was a new audience that she was leveraging her Oprah brand from. And then she leveraged it again to the OWN network, the Oprah Winfrey network. Um, and you know, dozens of people, dozens, <laughs> probably dozens of millions of people, um, 
you know, just took the goodwill in her brand and said, well, if Oprah is behind this, then the own network must be quality programming. And then most recently, I think she's done a partnership with what used to be called Weight Watchers, might be called WW now. Um, and she's got the Oh, That's Good brand of frozen meals. So once again, we've taken that Oprah Winfrey brand and we've seen its evolution through co-branding, through expansion of her own brand family, and each time she's monetizing her brand in new ways. So those are some examples of trade secrets with the consultants, um, copyrights with the software coders, and then Oprah is an example of a trademark or a brand monetization. So when folks are kind of considering this evolution of I have intellectual property in my business, I've been doing something with a client or I do the same process with my clients over and over again, and I want to actually turn this into a, a separate revenue stream. I want to do something with this. At what point do they need to start thinking about um, taking steps to actually protect or um, claim that asset? So it depends on the type of intellectual property. Uh, and so I'll, I'll give you answers that will align to what your listeners might have in terms of the IP that they'd like to, to monetize. So if you're a brand owner, under the United States law, you've got what are called common law rights. So let's say you're a, a mom and pop shop you only sell in, in your little suburban area. Um, you might not have stores. You probably don't have stores anywhere else. You're not selling online. Just opening up your mom and pop shop in your little area will give you some common law rights in your brand that you use um, to sell products and services through your business. If you are going to move out of your little local area and you say, well, I live in the Atlanta metropolitan area and I'd like to have a few more stores in my region. Then you want to start looking at filing a state trademark registration. Again, you're not selling online, but you're in more than just that one store. You're sort of becoming uh, regional within your cities that surround your first location. Then you want to think about filing, again, a state trademark registration. If you take your little local business and you say, I want to start selling products online, so I'm going to be outside of my state, or you say, I've had a lot of success in Georgia, and I want to expand out into Florida, South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, you're starting to look regional from a state perspective, you want to seriously think about investing in a federal trademark registration, because that's going to give you rights throughout the entire United States. So those are sort of, you know, very, very local state and then national from a trademark perspective. If you own um, works as, again, a coder or a consultant, particularly let's talk about consultants. So let's say you started to create a set of online courses, or let's say you've got a website and you're concerned that others are going to come and try to um, grab your content and take away your goodwill, the time and money that you spent in, in building up great copy or having wonderful photos on your site, then you want to go to copyright 
copyright.gov and you want to get a copyright registration for your website, and I know that websites are going to evolve and iterate. That's just the nature of that asset. But you want to start off having some protection uh, at a federal level through getting a copyright registration. I love people doing that because a copyright registration is going to cost you less than $100. You don't need to work with an attorney to do that. Uh, and it carries a big stick because it gives you the right to go after others and get statutory damages uh, of $150,000 or more for each infringement. So less than $100 investment, up to $150,000 per infringement for, uh, for damages. That's, that's a good investment. Um, and if you're going to be creating things like systems and procedures and so forth that you want to formulate, again, that you want to protect as a trade secret, then the way that you're going to go about that is keeping it a secret. And that is going to be done through contracts and common sense. From a common sense perspective, don't tell anybody your trade secrets <laughs> if you don't want them to know. From a contract perspective, if you've got employees, have language in your employment agreement that you own certain IP assets and that employee is not going to take them and use them without your permission. If you have a master services agreement, you want to reinforce your ownership and your intellectual property. Likewise, if you have independent contractor agreements, you want to reinforce that. And especially if you are... Um, a, a smaller business, a service professional, having a master services agreement where you acknowledge that your clients have intellectual property and you're going to treat that with respect and not infringe it, and in the same clause point out that you have intellectual property, that you're going to continue to own that and you're not granting it over to that client are ways that you can reinforce your um, your rights in your contracts. So I hope that helps to answer. Uh, there's no universal way. You want to think about it depending on the type of intellectual property that you're trying to protect. That makes sense. So there are a whole bunch of ways that you can turn your IP into money. We've mentioned a few of them. Um, can you talk me through some of maybe the more common options that service businesses should be thinking about? Sure. So I think you don't have to be Oprah to necessarily <laughs> think about where there are opportunities for you to expand your brand family or even to co-brand. So um, let's say that you are an expert in financial services and it would be a great idea for you to enter a collaboration with others who are going to provide complementary services to your same client base, maybe you co-brand. And, and let's get even more specific. Let's think if you are in a metropolitan area where you are known for, provide, for providing great quality services under your brand, then to be able to lend your name through a related service, um, a related product. So um, maybe you, for example, are, um, I don't know, let's just get wild and say you're a fractional CFO and, <laughs> and you have goodwill, um, you have an audience of people who know the quality of the services you offer and there is a piece of technology, maybe it's a piece of bookkeeping software, for example, that you really believe in. Maybe you will lend your brand and you could lend your brand through some sort of co-branding where, um, 
you will say, I will allow my brand to be used in context with that software brand. Maybe it is you saying, I want to have my own brand. And so I'm going to take a white label product and put my brand on top of it. And I'm going to offer that out and we'll figure out a revenue model where because it's it's being sold based on the goodwill in my brand, then I will take some portion of the revenue that's generated. And then the folks who are keeping the software current will earn some component of that revenue as well. Or it might look like a sponsorship where you are saying that because I have an audience who know, like, and trust me, I will um, allow you to use my name to sell more of your product through a sponsorship endorsement type thing. So you don't have to be, again, at an Oprah level to be a service provider who's worked hard to build up goodwill and notoriety and having that know, like, and trust factor that you can think about ways that you can start to capitalize on that brand for an additional revenue source. Um, it, because service businesses are so broad, there are lots of different ways. But what I would say is, if you are in the business of providing professional services, then again, you're an expert already. So I think about, again, as we're thinking through risk and resilience, um, a risk to a service provider's business model right now might be that if you were previously able to travel and deliver uh, your expertise in a customized, bespoke way to a set of clients in real time, maybe that's just not the safest thing to do right now. And so as you're thinking through the resilience of your business model, I would ask listeners to consider how can you continue to deliver that value in your intellectual property, but do it remotely? That might look like setting up customized workshops that are available online. What I would love even more is you thinking about how can you deliver the value that you have to offer when you're being paid to create a customized deliverable, but then either giving your client maybe a lower price point and getting in exchange the, the, um, the contract where you are giving that client a license to use that customized workshop with the understanding that you're not going to share anything of theirs as confidential, but you are going to reuse that content. And so what that means from a contract perspective is you're not, for example, entering work for hire terms because work for hire means you never owned that workshop that you created. It was always owned by that client. Instead, from a contract perspective, what that looks like is saying, I'm going to create a workshop that can be delivered to, to you digitally. And what we're not going to do in that workshop is talk about anything that's confidential to you that you wouldn't want anyone else to know. But at the end of the day, I'm going to give you a license so that those within your organization who need that material can access it. But then I'm also going to use it to start to build up content for my subscription for clients who or customers and just client being in my mind, the more bespoke work and customers being a one-to-many model. So your client gets the, del the deliverable that they need and then you can maybe take that expertise that's delivered through the workshop and put that behind a paywall and that starts to be a subscription model that you can deliver one-to-many. So what I'm saying is I really want folks to think about how you take brands or expertise that you already have, 
What are the ways you can work with others to deliver it under a new facade or in a new vehicle? And how can you think about having more customized, higher, more premium level um, products? And then how can you have more one-to-many, more commoditized reuses of those premium deliverables? Does that make Mm. sense, Susan? Yeah, it totally does. So how do you see these kind of, um, these models, these different options that you can turn your IP into revenue streams, how do you see that fitting in or working together as part of your overall business model? Does your you know business model inform the strategy you should follow or does your IP kind of the, the type of work that you're doing drive it? How, how do those two interact? So like anyone who is advising you in, in business, I think the most important thing to think about is what is the value proposition that you have to offer? And then your intellectual property should support that value proposition. So one of the things I always talk to clients about is whether you are intending to sell your business or not, I want to increase the value of your business. If you at some point are going to be looking at attracting investors, those investors are going to do diligence on your intellectual property portfolio. If at some time you are looking to exit from your business, a buyer is going to be looking at the value of your intellectual property. So if you are thinking first around, how do I deliver value to my clients, my customers, then that is the building block from which you think about what intellectual property complements that value. And so that might look like um, you coming up with a, a, a consistent content strategy that supports what you're trying to achieve. Going back to the example that I said before, I would love for you to organize your intellectual property in two baskets. One being, what is my premium model? And second being, what is my commoditized model? So if you are um, thinking through that, in my mind, those are going to be intellectual property and licensing ladders. And by that, I mean, if you're developing brands, have a consistent brand strategy so that you're building up a brand family. Uh, If you, for example, are a service provider, then you're going to have a core competency that you start out with. And then you're going to build a series of things around that core competency. For me, that looks like having a series of legal services that I provide to clients based on a core competency that meets a value proposition. So for me, um, my strategic services are all branded under Assure. But if I'm helping a client monetize intellectual property and build a framework for their own IP monetization, that's gonna be called Assure Architect. If I'm helping a client who is just crossing that seven figure threshold and they're trying to think about how can I make sure that I can get some peace at mind around my legal foundation because I've just been growing the business and focusing on servicing my clients and customers. There are a consistent set of things that someone who is early in that seven figure stage of revenue is going to be concerned about. So for me, that's going to be a short atlas where I'm giving them a legal roadmap. And then the third piece in that brand strategy is going to be if you have, let's say, 
an outside CFO and you have an outside legal advisor, at some point you should regularly be meeting with that internal and external team to think forward about strategy. So if you're gonna be launching something new, you wanna have your fractional CFO advising you around cost structures and pricing issues and so forth. And you're going to want to have your lawyer talking to you about what those contracts should look like and what the intellectual property that supports it should look like. And so for me, the third piece in that brand family is going to be a sure agenda where we're listening to the business owner around what's your next agenda for the next quarter, six months, year. So what I'm purposefully doing is building a brand family. I would ask listeners to do the same thing. As you are thinking about the services that you're providing to your client base, what are your core competencies? What do they repeatedly need? And how can you build a brand family that meets that need? And from a content perspective, how can you build out a set of content that someone else hopefully is paying you to develop, but protecting it from a contractual basis and building out a family of content that eventually has enough value that people will pay you to be able to access it. So those to my mind are first thinking through what is your value proposition and then building intellectual property to support that value proposition to add to the value of your business. Now what? That's the question I hear from a lot of service-based business owners. Maybe you've even been asking yourself, now what too? You've built your business from the ground up and your business works, but it's not growing. You keep bumping into a ceiling on how many clients you can take on and how much money you can make. And maybe now you're even wondering if your business has staying power. You might be keenly aware of how small challenges could easily balloon into big problems as the market and the economy change. I help entrepreneurs decide how to take action so they can build a more resilient business that's primed for growth. I combine strategic thinking with a background in business finance, data, and operations to see the patterns that have your business bumping against a growth ceiling. I show you exactly what you can do to break through and make more money all while making sure the foundation under your business is strong. I have new client openings for my quarterly or monthly advisory packages now. When you work with me, I'll examine your financial reports to spot opportunities. We'll talk about where you're feeling friction and discover ways you can reclaim your time and attention. We'll dig into how to scale your operations without sacrificing quality so you increase your capacity and make more money. Each action you take will be informed by a strategic financial insight and data-driven operational planning. The result, you'll feel wildly capable and in control, and you'll finally break through that ceiling. Ready to learn more about working with me as your business growth advisor? Go to scalespark.co slash advisor. So what are some things to kind of consider, pitfalls to avoid, stuff where you've seen business owners mess up a whole bunch <laughs> when they're kind of starting out on this journey? What are, what are some things to, to keep an eye out for? So um, I, I am a really pragmatic lawyer and I pride myself on that. I have worked with clients who are entrepreneurs just getting started, and I have served clients who uh, generate multiple billions of dollars in, in revenue. One commonality amongst all of them is they all have a budget. 
And so it's really important to think about prioritizing and, and what is going to be a priority is going to depend a lot on where you are in your stage of business. But I'll tell you that one key thing that both business owners and lawyers who are not focused in the intellectual property area um, consistently don't understand is what the words work for hire mean. I mentioned it before, but I appreciate the opportunity to reiterate it, especially because you have an audience of service professionals. So again, the words work for hire mean that you never owned the copyright in the work that you're creating. So if we step back under US copyright law, as soon as you take something from your mind and you save it on the computer or you write it down, it might be um, you know, your expression of how to train someone to yield a certain result. Again, you need to write it down or better yet in a modern area, save it on your computer and you immediately are the author in that work and you own a copyright in it. You wanna take it one step further by submitting it to the US Copyright Office through copyright.gov and getting a copyright registration because it gives you additional protections that you would not receive if you hadn't done that. And ideally you wanna do it pretty quickly within three months and certainly before you start publishing it or selling it or offering it to others. And then you get into that point where you're exploiting your, your copyright protected work. And again, if you are, let's say a consultant, that might be you coming into um, train with your unique training materials that you develop from your years of expertise. Before you step in there, you want to ideally have your own contract that you're offering to your client. Um, but if you are having a contract put in front of you, you want to look out for those words work for hire because what work for hire does is it erases out what copyright law would have done for you in granting you protection in those training materials, videos, and other works that you created. And it says anything that you're delivering to us is a work for hire. The danger of that is that you are inadvertently giving away your core business assets because you probably use some variation of those materials over and over as a consultant to go out and work with your clients. And if you are signing work for higher terms with any one of those given clients, you're saying, I just gave you my core assets that I use to earn a living. So what that requires, and, and most of my clients are negotiating with Fortune 500s, and so what that often requires is me helping to educate the attorney on the other side to help them feel confident that, listen, we're not trying to pull a fast one on you, but the reason why you came to my client is because you know they have an expertise in what they do allow us to grant you a set of license rights where you can use whatever it is that you need in the deliverable without my client giving away their core assets that they need to be able to do business. So that's a big risk that a lot of people are inadvertently stepping into by signing work for higher terms. There might be circumstances, by the way, Susan, where work for higher terms makes sense, but that should be part of your premium model in terms of making sure if you are going to create something that you're signing the rights away for, make sure you're being paid at a level that's appropriate for signing those rights away. Um, another thing that I would say is be careful that you're not investing and adopting a brand 
uh, or really not just a brand, any kind of trademark. Again, trademark is an umbrella term for brand names, logos, and slogans. You want to be careful not to start putting your dollars behind marketing, um, websites, certainly anything like labels or what have you that are going to be really expensive to change before you've done some kind of trademark clearance. So that can be at a very preliminary level, running a Google search, um, going to social media to see, does someone own this handle? Uh, just trying to understand what is out there that any regular person could find on the internet that is reflecting the same brand. Google even has some technology where you can do a reverse image search um, and try to find out are there logos that look like yours. The next stage would be to work with an attorney to do some more sophisticated searches. Um, certainly if you're looking at, at selling online or selling in multiple states, you want to do some more sophisticated searches uh, so that before, again, you're starting to spend dollars around any kind of serious marketing, you've done some clearance work to know that the brand you want to use is actually available for your use. Because the worst case scenario is you start doing those marketing investments, um, you start to build up an audience of customers, things are going well, and then you get sued for infringement. Because then not only might you have to not use all the things you've invested in from a marketing perspective, you might owe someone else damages. So from a trademark and copyright perspective, those are the core things from a trade secret perspective. I know this sounds like common sense. So often I go back to things that my grandmother's taught me. Don't tell people things they don't need to know. You know, if you are just in the earliest stages of talking about working with someone as a customer or a vendor, don't start talking about the details of your customer lists, your sales projections, your formulae, your algorithms. Don't discuss things that don't need to be discussed. And if you feel like you might need to go into that space, at the very least, have a confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement in place. And you know, while we're in a work from home setting where it's only going to become more and more common, make sure that your employees, your consultants, your vendors, anyone who's accessing those trade secrets, first ask yourself, why do they need to have access? And second, put some security privacy and common sense protocols in place to try to keep those things secret. Hmm. So you mentioned something a while back that uh, made me start thinking. Um, so a lot of my audience does digital courses or they release digital tools um, for sales stuff that you know you can use um, in different software products. How would either one of those assets kind of fall into this structure? Are those things that you would trademark? Are they things that you need to copyright? Um, does it work differently if they're in somebody else's software? Can you kind of talk me through that structure there? So I would think about this from the perspective of trademarks, copyrights, and contracts. So trademarks and copyrights, have, as we've discussed, are intellectual property. But the core way that you monetize intellectual property is typically through some kind of licensing arrangement. Um, that might look like a certification agreement. That might look like a subscription behind a paywall. Um, that might look like some sort of revenue share for co-branding or sponsorship or endorsement. So um, 
it really depends on the details. But if, if I try to work through what you're saying, I'll, I'll go through the trademark, copyright, and contract pieces. So if you have um, something you've created and it's going to be integrated into something someone else has built, you might want to think about branding. Do you want to have your piece of that set aside and identified in the user interface with your brand? to reinforce your brand, right? To go grow your brand goodwill. Um, if you think about it, the reason why Weight Watchers wants Oprah Winfrey and the, the O brand to be on their product, they want to point it out because it's signaling to people, someone you trust has said that this is a good product. That same thing could apply if your brand is being integrated into someone else's platform. Um, from a copyright perspective, again, if you are creating training materials, videos, um, any sorts of taking segments out of a book that you wrote and including it into the copy, writing copy to train or teach something within someone else's platform, all of those things are protected under copyright. And you want to be really clear under a copyright license around and under a brand license around what rights you are allowing what rights of review. So now we're moving into contract, right? So the contract is going to be where you build in um, that revenue piece and those licensing ladders that I talked about. So if you're thinking through um, what the contract should look like, I would say what you want to understand is where does the other party find value? So that might mean that they want to have the right to use your training materials on their digital platform. Well then the contract or the license specifically is the type of contract should say that they have digital rights. They don't have print rights. Maybe you're going to grant the print rights to someone else. You want to talk about what the territory is. So maybe they have the rights to use your content in a digital format within the United States, but they don't have those rights. Let's say for example, in Canada or elsewhere in the world. You want to think about what sort of time frame, how long. So one of the things I love to negotiate is how long will someone have rights? You might come in at a certain price point because you're trying to prove your value, but you might want the right to renegotiate that or to level up to a better, more favorable price point for the expert a year later because they're going to have seen how popular their content is through clicks to that page or what have you. Um, and then you also want to think about exclusivity when you're doing your licensing ladder. If you're going to give someone else those exclusive rights, you are going to be turning away other opportunities to license that content. And so that has a value. So one of the things that I work with clients around is understanding what value do you have to offer? Who are those target clients or customers who want to receive that value? And what do your revenue and licensing ladders look like? So you're not inadvertently giving away more rights than you need to, and you're reserving space to come back as the value and goodwill in your brand grows, as 
uh, more revenue is being generated from your copyrights and your content so that you can take that and go negotiate with others to continue to grow revenue uh, and continue to diversify your revenue streams and your income models as well as scale your impact in different ways. If you don't know that each one of those can be discreetly segmented, then you're limiting and, and unfortunately often inadvertently limiting those additional opportunities. Mm. Cool. So I think that's a good place to kind of start wrapping this up on. Um, is there anything you think we should talk about that we haven't touched on yet that you think is important? I, I should probably confess that I've done this for over 20 years and I get super excited <laughs> talking about how to monetize intellectual property. And I get excited about it, particularly right now, because, uh, you know, by hook or crook, so many people are being forced to rethink, how can I generate income from my family? Um, I, my bills are still the same. My commitments to my family are still the same. Maybe your job situation is not what it was before. Maybe the ways that you generated revenue are not the same as they were before. So I get really excited because I get to fly my IP geek flag and talk about stuff <laughs> that I think is so interesting and help people um, in the real world. So most of my clients are seven and eight figure businesses. They are not huge enterprise level behemoths and they're going out and punching above their weight when they're negotiating with them. Um, so I really enjoy and, and appreciate the opportunity to just help people understand you've already got these assets. And, and if there are ways that I can demystify this and, and help you through my experience, take your idea um, and develop it into something that makes money. I love to do that. Just just a quick story. I um, have who, who are now friends, but they were a husband and wife team who um, were a pastor and a school teacher, and they just have true servants' hearts. And they, over 10 years, built out a model going into immigrant communities here in the Atlanta area. Um, and just serving as a liaison between immigrant families and local school systems um, and figuring out where their communication gaps and what are the resources that these families need because they want to see their kids succeed like anyone else. And over the course of time, they built out a framework that has doubled the graduation rate of students. And what that means is whole generations are going to have new sets of opportunities opened up to them because these kids didn't drop out. And so what happened is the mobile home community owners um, where these immigrant families live were starting to see the value to their bottom line. And what I was able to do was help my friends and, and now clients build out a certification program so they could take that brain trust and scale their impact and do more good while earning more revenue to support the programs that they've already built out. Um, so I, that's an example of something that just makes me really proud to be able to take what I know how to do and help people scale and, and do better for themselves and, and their communities. Oh, I love that. That's a fabulous story. <laughs> Thank you. So where can our listeners find you if they want to connect with you or learn more about what you do? So one way that might be helpful is to visit the website, which is homes, H-O-L-M-E-S, at law.com. Uh, you'll find that Assure Architect IP monetization framework there in a visual and bullet-pointed format, which I think might help people be able to absorb it and relate it to their talents. 
Uh, I am also on LinkedIn. Uh, Joanne is J-O-A-N-N uh, Holmes, H-O-L-N-E-S. Love to connect with folks on LinkedIn. And the last thing I would say is if you enjoyed hearing me, uh, you know, be the IP geek that I am, my podcast is Your Business Ally, where I talk all about how to um, implement profitable legal strategies and monetize intellectual property. And so I would invite people to join me on the Your, at the Your Business Ally podcast and, and learn, learn more about just how truly geeky I am. <laughs> We love geeking out here, so I, I think that's probably right up our listeners' alley. Thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation, and I really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise and your enthusiasm with us. It was, as I said before, truly my pleasure. I've been following you for a while, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a, a girl fan here. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> using your intellectual property to create an additional revenue stream for your business, or even to create a pivot altogether, is a great way to mitigate the risks of big drops in your income. By having more than one place or way that you make money, you're building resilience into your business. You're building in some breathing room to react if something catastrophic happens to one source, because you've still got money coming in from all of your other sources. So, if something happens, you can pause, take a breath, and calmly and strategically figure out what to do next. But using your intellectual property to create another source of income isn't the only option available to you. There are lots of different ways that you can diversify when it comes to how you make your money. One option that's become very popular lately is the creation of communities or membership products. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. My guest, Sophie Bougeau, is an expert in helping businesses create communities. We're going to talk about what it means to build a great community and where it belongs in your business model. So be sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode is edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Rundvik.